1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman.
2: And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
1: People flock to Florida for its beaches and warm weather, but its environmental challenges are immense, including rising sea levels, intense hurricanes, algal blooms that kill marine life, and both too much and too little water.
2: And Slava Vakarchuk is Ukraine's best-known rock star, a singer of ballads, protest songs, and ballads that have become protest songs. But he's more than that, a trained physicist, a game show winner, a former parliamentarian, and now a soldier. But first, Britain's most senior lawmaker is now officially a lawbreaker. Prime Minister Boris Johnson was fined yesterday for breaching the very COVID lockdown rules he put into force.
3: Uh, Today, I've received a fixed penalty notice from the Metropolitan Police relating to an event in Downing Street on the 19th of June, 2020. And let me say immediately that I've paid the fine and I once again offer a full apology and in a
2: spirit... He's the first serving prime minister to be found in breach of the law. The police are just making formal what the British public already knew. During lockdowns, senior government figures had been partying repeatedly while private citizens were holed up at home. Also receiving fines and issuing apologies yesterday were Carrie Johnson, the prime minister's wife, and Rishi Sunak, the chancellor of the Exchequer and, until recently, a plausible successor to Mr. Johnson. In prior eras or under different leaders, this kind of thing would lead to a string of resignations. For Mr. Johnson, it's most probably just another briefly troubling news cycle.
3: So at the end of last year, British politics was shaken by revelations that during lockdown, senior politicians and senior officials in Downing Street and across Whitehall had been having lots of
2: illicit parties. Duncan Robinson is our political editor.
3: Boris Johnson wasn't especially honest about this. He first told Parliament that there had been no parties. Uh, Is that all guidance was followed uh, completely during... And when that turned out to be false, he said he didn't know about them. And when that turned out to be false, because he'd actually attended several of them, he'd said he'd been warned that the parties weren't actually parties, that they were within the rules. Was it and, was it a party where the guidelines were followed or was it not a party? It, it, the, I can tell you that the guidelines were followed at all times. And, you, did you investigate can, that yourself? Have you satisfied yourself? That I that have is satisfied occurred? myself that the guidelines... And that's been the story throughout this saga where Boris Johnson is forced to reveal a little bit more of the truth every time as evidence appears.
2: So that was the story as of last year, and now the Metropolitan Police have actually uh, handed out their penalties. How serious is it now?
3: So legally, it is not especially serious. Boris Johnson has been fined £50, which is about $65, for breaking the rules during lockdown. Boris Johnson has paid the fine, said that he's very, very sorry, and also said, effectively, he won't resign.
2: Why is that, though? He's been shown to have broken the law. Why wouldn't he stand down?
3: Well, bluntly, if you're the type of person who attends illegal parties during a lockdown that you yourself had introduced, then you're probably not the type of person who will resign with honour when that is revealed. So it's quite self-reinforcing. And because he himself won't step down, it will be up to the MPs in his party to effectively force him to step down, to say, we don't support you anymore. But there doesn't seem to be much indication that they will do that either. So their calculus is that, One, it's not quite the right time to do that, given that there is a war going on in Ukraine. And two, that politically, Boris Johnson is still the best bet that they have, that there isn't much of an alternative elsewhere in the party, that Boris Johnson, despite it all, is in their eyes still the best man for the job.
2: Do you think this story would be different now if there weren't war in Ukraine?
3: Yes, it would be different because Ukraine effectively hands conservative MPs an excuse. They have this reputation for ruthlessness, which isn't really deserved anymore. They've had incompetent leaders a few times now and have sat on their hands and waited and waited and waited until the last possible moment to get rid of them. And so when Ukraine came along, for that it is an extremely serious situation, it did provide the perfect excuse for inactivity. Britain has played a relatively significant role and Boris Johnson has surprised people with the sort of competence and diligence in his handling of it.
2: And I guess more to the point, as you say, MPs don't think that they've got a better choice lined up, even if he were to be booted.
3: Yes. So the main alternative was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is Rishi Sunak. But he's had an incredibly rough week. So going into this week, he was the sort of opposite of Boris Johnson. He was this quite diligent, hardworking, even well-presented young person, quite a fresh face. And Johnson is the opposite of all those things. But this week he got in quite a lot of trouble, partly because his wife, who's an extremely wealthy woman and the daughter of a billionaire, turned out to have non non-dons tax status, which effectively meant she didn't have to pay tax on her international income in the UK. Understandably, people were a little bit surprised and upset that the wife of the Chancellor, who sets taxes in the UK, doesn't pay all of those taxes that other people do. And on top of that, Rishi Sunak, who is supposed to be cleaner than clean, has also been fined for attending a party in Downing Street. Now, he argues that he was a sort of victim of circumstance, that he literally wandered into the room for two minutes while people were singing happy birthday to the prime minister. But the point still remains that he's been fined for breaking the law during a lockdown.
2: But you describe a situation where Tory MPs are again going to sit on their hands. There aren't going to be resignations. What is the damage here? Is this just a news line for the day?
3: So it's more than a newsline for the day because it's been a story for months. And so in some respects, the damage is already done. The government is much less popular than it was. And Boris Johnson is much less popular than he was. And so there has been a sort of political toll exacted. It just hasn't crystallised into a certain moment yet. It's just another bad thing that's happened for the Conservative Party and it's going to be a really, really rough year for them. This is a government that's facing a massive cost of living crisis. Things are going to get pretty grim economically in Britain in the coming months. And a lot of blame is going to be hoisted on the government. So in some respects, the problem with the parties will seem relatively small, almost, compared to the economic hit that's coming down the road.
2: Well, you say that, but this story was absolutely enormous last year. People were furious that the government had been breaking the rules that the public had been adhering to.
3: The point isn't that... Partygate was a small thing in and of itself. It's that the problems coming up are larger and will have a bigger effect. It's one thing to be sort of annoyed about politicians being hypocrites, but it's quite another if a heating bill goes from £1,500 to closer to £4,000. And that's going to be the situation for a lot of people in Britain this year. People are angry, and the majority of people in snap polls think that Boris Johnson should resign. And that will play on the minds of Conservative MPs who effectively have the power to push him out of office if they so choose.
2: But it has to be said that Mr. Johnson has essentially shrugged off every scandal, every gate before this one.
3: That is true. He is, as people like to say, in fact, as the former Prime Minister David Cameron, his sort of lifelong rival called him, he's a greased piglet. He slips through gaps that other people would be trapped in. And I think that's partly because people expect it. He's inoculated against scandal because people think that he is just like that. And so in some respects, the worst thing you can be in politics, strangely, is a hypocrite. And Boris Johnson is very rarely a hypocrite because he's quite straightforward about how dishonest he is. He's an honest liar.
2: But what do you think that means then for British politics, if not only can there be a prime minister who's an honest liar, but he can turn out to be wildly successful in the face of scandal like this? It is
3: not good for Britain. Britain's not a very well-governed country at the moment, and Britain has lots of problems that aren't being fixed, partly because you have this man who's not really up to the job in power. And so everyone who put him there has to take a look at themselves. And so you can point fingers at Johnson himself for putting himself forward for the job. You can point fingers at the Conservative MPs who decided that this is the man that they, the sensible Conservatives, have decided to put into office. And then you can also look at voters, Everyone knew what Boris Johnson was like. He's been in the public eye for decades and millions of people effectively ticked a box saying, this is the man I want to run the country. So there's lots of blame to go around.
2: Thanks very much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: What's next in innovation? That's not the right question.
1: Florida's climate is one of extremes. It has blissful beaches and the natural wonder of the Everglades. It also gets hit with more hurricanes than any other state. Sea levels are rising, while at the same time, much of the state experiences frequent droughts. Addressing that tension is becoming increasingly urgent.
4: The environment is Florida's biggest asset, but also its greatest liability.
1: Alexandra Sewich bass is The Economist's senior correspondent for politics, technology, and society.
4: Tourists visit and people move because they're drawn to nature. But with population growth as Florida's biggest industry, that absolutely threatens nature and the environment. I spoke to Florida Speaker of the House, Chris Sprouls, who said that the environment is under risk.
1: Uh, You know, environment is wildly important to who we are as Floridians, but it's also one of the reasons people come here. So if that goes away or we ruin that, not only have we squandered our inheritance as Floridians, but we've also now curtailed our ability to, to bring new people to the state. So, you
4: know, we have to protect
1: our environment. And what do those threats look like in practice?
4: Well, the population in Florida is growing rapidly. Between 2010 and 2020, Florida's population grew at double the national rate. In speaking with Speaker Sprouls, it's very clear that this growth is contributing positively to the economy, but also negatively impacting the environment.
1: You know, we have significant risks to our environment. You know, clean water, more people coming here creates a, a more of a strain on the environment than, than we've had before.
2: Um, you have more strain.
4: So the Everglades used to be double the current size before the 1880s. Then they were drained and filled in for development. But population growth and new developments are expected to continue to expand the number of septic tank systems by almost a quarter over the next decade. This is a problem because septic tanks can sometimes contaminate the water supply. Then there are also other signs that nature is being taxed. One is the Florida panther, which is Florida's official state animal, which has been killed by habitat destruction and car collisions. Today, there are an estimated 130 Florida panthers or fewer left in the wild.
1: And of course, it's not just in Florida where human activity is affecting the environment, right? Globally, the climate is changing as well as Florida, especially at risk from any of those impacts.
4: Yes, absolutely, John. That's right. Florida is not alone, but it is especially vulnerable to sea level rise and the impact of climate change. When it comes to extreme weather events, Florida experienced around 40 percent of hurricanes to have hit America. That's more than any other state. It's had severe and widespread drought at least once a decade for the past hundred years and it's only gonna get worse. So Florida suffers from both too much water and then not enough. It's a difficult position to be in. An estimated 20% of Florida's property is at substantial risk of flooding, for example. So there's a real generational challenge here. The population growth is an important driver of Florida's economy, yet it ultimately takes a big cost on Florida and its long-term future to protect people and the environment and ensure the state's resilience.
1: And this sounds like an existential threat to Florida. How are the state's politicians responding?
4: Well, Florida is interesting because Republicans in the state sound a lot more like Democrats than the National Republican Party does when it comes to environmental issues and climate change. Governor DeSantis was elected in 2018 as an environmentalist. He supported bans on fracking and offshore drilling.
1: Governor Scott, you know, in Florida, our coastline is so important to our economy. It's important to property values. It's important to tourism. And uh, we need to protect our coastline.
4: It's important to note that he's not exactly Teddy Roosevelt, who was animated by a personal connection to nature. Governor DeSantis has made a political calculation, understanding that voters care a lot about the environment, and have fears over climate change. But it's a welcome change from Governor DeSantis's predecessor, Rick Scott, who reportedly banned staff from saying the words climate change. Still, Governor DeSantis is not exactly in the California mold. He does not want to do quote-unquote left-wing stuff, and he's been unwilling to tackle the underlying cause of global warming. He's trying to walk a tightrope bringing attention to environmental issues without alienating businesses or curtailing development.
1: And so fairly limited support for climate change legislation, what does that look like in practice?
4: Well, the state legislature has agreed since 2021 to invest in a state resilience fund. Speaker Sprowls explained to me why they decided to do that.
1: You know, we passed the always ready bill, looking at Florida being surrounded three sides by water and say we're not planning for sea level rise we're not planning for you know the flooding that is you know devastating our community we're not prepared for a cat 4 cat 5 hurricane how do we do that and now we're on a struggle.
4: In 2022 for example Florida invested 400 million dollars in 113 environmental resilience projects around the state which are aimed at preparing communities for flooding and storm surge so there is some money being aimed at this issue Of course, many would look skeptically and say it's not nearly enough, given the size of Florida's problems. Governor DeSantis has also created an office of the chief resilience officer, although the position has often stayed vacant and under-resourced to date.
1: And so those are statewide initiatives. Are there more local initiatives? Are there places that are especially threatened by climate change that are doing additional stuff on their own?
4: Absolutely. Basically, Florida is taking the view that this should be more up to local governments and county governments to address rather than necessarily the state directing the different projects. So I spoke with the mayor of Key West, Terry Johnston, about the need to plan for the future. She said that the cost of raising roads and making other adjustments for sea level rise has been, quote unquote, astronomical. The county's doing shoreline work to reinforce beaches. The city's changed regulations around height limits for buildings so they can build higher and above flood elevation. Although Mayor Johnston said she'd like to see much more funding and planning come from the state government rather than it just being left to local communities to try and address this. Right now, there's no statewide strategy for managing population growth alongside environmental protection. So if your whole economy relies on real estate and population growth as fuel, One would be skeptical about how much hundreds of millions of dollars or even billions of dollars will do to address this issue because you're basically running in place or falling behind as new people continue to come and degrade the environment.
1: And finally, Alexandra, this reporting you did on Florida's environment, it, it was part of a much bigger project. Can you tell us about that?
4: I have spent a lot of time in Florida. I wrote our special report on Florida, looking at Florida from a variety of perspectives. The environment is one, but also... I look at the economics of Florida and business environment and the politics of Florida. And we got to go deep on the political environment in Florida on the Checks and Balance podcast.
1: And I can attest, not just as a colleague, but also as a reader, it's a fantastic special report. Well worth your time. Alexandra, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thank you, John. Always a pleasure.
2: On deserted school playground in the battered Ukrainian city of Kharkiv, a lone cellist plays. The moments of Ukrainians making music in adversity are among the war's most poignant. Whether it's a little girl singing Let It Go in a bomb shelter, or a stubbly man in a hoodie leading a crowd in song,
5: The man in this clip, with the gravelly, soulful voice, who's leading a crowd, taking shelter in the metro in Kharkiv in eastern Ukraine, is called Slava Vakachuk, Ukraine's most famous rock star. Andrew Miller is The Economist's culture editor. Slava is one of the many Ukrainian actors, musicians and dancers to have joined the war effort. He's currently touring the country, singing to raise the morale of his embattled compatriots.
2: Tell me more about him. Why is he the biggest rock star in Ukraine?
5: Slava Vakarchuk, whose full name is Sviatslav Vakarchuk, is the frontman of Okean Elzy, which means Ocean of Elza, which he co-founded as a student back in 1994. Its music has evolved a lot over the years. Some of it's lush, there's often lots of guitars, there's some ballads. But since it's been around, more or less since the country became independent, many Ukrainians have grown up with the music of Okean Elzy. And in a way, their albums are kind of the soundtrack of independent Ukraine. Slava himself isn't a typical rock star. He's kind of the equivalent in Ukraine of Bono or Bruce Springsteen. He, first of all, has a PhD in theoretical physics, and he's always been involved one way or another in politics, including doing two stints as an MP in Ukraine's parliament on the second occasion, launching his own party. And in fact, he was for a long time touted as a possible candidate for the presidency.
2: It sounds like there's nothing he can't do, but now he's also a soldier too?
5: Yeah, he's a pretty impressive guy. When the war broke out, he considered what he could do best to help. And by joining the army, he has been allowed and able to travel across the country performing for groups of wounded soldiers, for refugees... Even in the best of times, there isn't a lot of time for writing music when you're on the road. And this wartime tour is very far from the best of times. But he did say that he had found time over the course of the fighting to make one recording, which is a cover of You Are So Beautiful. And he accompanies himself in it on the piano. And he told me that in his mind, the woman who he's singing to in this song is Ukraine, his country.
2: So is his music overtly political then?
5: Well, the lyrics are not always overtly political, but they have been co-opted often for... Political ends during the Orange Revolution of 2004. He and Okeanyalzi played regular gigs on Independence Square in Kiev to help keep morale up during the protests that winter that overturned a rigged election. And they did a similar kind of thing in the bloodier revolution that happened in 2013 to 14. Some of the songs that they performed on these occasions have obviously political implications. One of them is called Rise Up. It talks about Rise Up, my darling, your land is waiting. Another one, which is called Without a Fight, is actually a love song. But it got repurposed during the revolution as a kind of resistance anthem.
2: And so another period of strife for the country, and he seems to have been around for so many of them. I imagine his music is resonating that much more this time around.
5: That's right. Another OK song he said that people want to hear at the moment is called Everything Will Be All Right. Obviously, people are in dire need of consolation across Ukraine now. In 2015, the band made a song called Not Your War, which was provoked by the Kremlin-backed invasion of the Donbass in eastern Ukraine that was already ongoing. And it contains the lyrics, how many more children will you lose in someone else's war? And that song is tragically resonating even more than ever among Ukrainians now.
2: That makes me wonder how he's viewed in Russia. Does he have a following there?
5: In the past, the band has often toured across Russia, and he hoped that would improve relations between the two countries and also help to showcase Ukrainian culture to Russians, a place where some people anyway are sceptical about the very idea of the Ukrainian nation and Ukrainian culture. But Slava explained that after the annexation of Crimea in 2014, he and his bandmates decided that they wouldn't be going to Russia again until the territories that had been taken from Ukraine were given back. And as he put it, there's a new Russia. Andrew,
2: thank you very much for
5: joining us. Thanks for having me, Jason.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts
2: And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
0: World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50
4: elections around the world.